Beginning in 1 Peter 2.11, the focus changes from one's creed to one's conduct. Previously, Peter has dealt with doctrinal truths for scattered and suffering believers, such as salvation, obedience, holiness, and love. Now he begins to practically demonstrate how those truths should play out as one lives and works in a hostile and pagan society. Mainstream Christianity in the Western world has been consumed with living the good life. Little thought has been given to suffering or persecution. However, the age of rage and the growing cancel culture has begun to change that. Believers in the West are beginning to get a small taste of what believers in the rest of the world already experience, varying degrees of suffering, slander, and persecution. This section, beginning in verse 11 through verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2, begins with a practical application of holiness. That is, believers must live as aliens and strangers in a pagan culture. Peter then continues with a practical application of obedience. Believers must live in obedience to a pagan government. So as we go through chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, looking at the theme of living amongst paganisms, we'll look at verses 11 to 12 and consider the fact that we are living as aliens and strangers amid a pagan culture. And then we'll look at verses 13 through 17 and consider living in obedience to a pagan government. So let's begin with verse 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which you, they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. So let's begin with living as aliens and strangers amid a pagan culture. Notice here that Peter begins by addressing his readers as beloved. The term beloved, agapetas, is derived from the term agapeo. Agapeo means to sacrificially seek the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. The term beloved, agapetas, views the recipients of this letter as the object of that sacrificial love. See, as children of God, we are the objects of God's sacrificial love, Romans 1.7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. However, note that it is Peter speaking. I urge you. That Peter invokes the term beloved recalls the conversation between Peter and Jesus after the resurrection, John 21, 15 to 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, in the context of John 21, Jesus is confronting Peter after his threefold sin of denial. Jesus asks Peter three times, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter responds each time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What is lost in translation is that Jesus referred to sacrificial love, agapeo, while Peter responded with brotherly love, phileo. Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape o me? Do you sacrificially love me? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. I have brotherly love for you. Now, Peter's confession is honest. But he did not yet love the Lord to the degree that Jesus wanted. Jesus wanted Peter to love him sacrificially by seeking the highest good of his sheep. Despite Peter's confession, Jesus recommissions Peter to care for his sheep. And now almost 30 years later, the use of beloved demonstrates that Peter has learned to love Jesus and his sheep sacrificially. Believers must examine what kind of love they have for Christ. What kind of love do you have for Christ? Do you love him like a brother or do you love him enough to sacrifice your life for him? Peter's sacrificial love drives the emotion here behind his appeal. Beloved, I urge you the term urge, parakaleo, means to exhort or encourage someone in order to build them up. In the New Testament, the term urge was often used in exhortations to godly living. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12, 1. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore, again it's or urge, parakaleo, you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians 4.1. Philippians 4.2, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Philippians 4.2. Urge, parakaleo, is related to the term parakletos, which Christ used to describe the Holy Spirit's ministry of coming alongside of believers to exhort and encourage them. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another parakletos, that he may be with you forever. Thus, when Peter urges them to do something, he was not merely exhorting or encouraging them from afar. Though he was separated from his sheep, Peter still came alongside them to exhort and encourage them through his words. He physically couldn't be alongside them, but through his messages and letters to them, 
It was as if he had come alongside them to encourage and exhort them. Notice Peter exhorts these believers as aliens and strangers. Aliens are temporary residents of another country. Strangers underscores that they have, do not have a permanent habitation in the areas in which they are now residing. It's interesting that Peter adopts these two terms from Abraham in Genesis 23 verse 4 and David in Psalm 39 verse 12. Genesis 23, verse 4, Abraham said, I am a stranger and sojourner among you. I'm an alien and stranger. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Psalm 39, verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Abraham describes himself as an alien and stranger because he owned no ground in which to bury Sarah. David uses the term to emphasize the shortness of life. See, like Abraham, our residency in this world is temporary. And as such, we must not adopt the pagan culture of the peoples amongst whom we live. Instead, we are to live distinctly holy lives. Not only should we not adopt the pagan culture, but Peter urges us or exhorts us to abstain from fleshly lust. Now, fleshly denotes the weaknesses of people. Peter defines fleshly lust in chapter 4 and verse 3 as sensuality, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The command here to abstain from fleshly lust indicates that we are not exempt from these lusts. Again, Peter's writing to believers. He's giving them this command to abstain from fleshly lust. Therefore, we're not exempt from these lusts. These lusts or desires are fleshly because they provide some degree of physical enjoyment, albeit temporarily. James, in chapter 1 and verse 15 of his epistle, warns that when lust conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when grown, gives birth to death. Such desires, again, sensuality, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, and the such, wage war, Peter says, against the soul. Contextually, soul refers to the entirety of a person. It's waging a war against the entirety of your person. You see, believer, you and I, we cannot adopt this passive mindset of let go and let God. The only prescription for fleshly lust is to abstain from or actively keep away from them. He urges his readers, he urges us as believers not only to abstain from fleshly lust, but, he goes on to say, keep your behavior 
excellent among the Gentiles. The word keep is a present tense participle denoting the idea of continually having something. Behavior is your conduct. And excellent denotes something that is good in a moral sense, i.e. virtuous. And from the perspective of Paul, or excuse me, of Peter's Jewish readers, Gentiles were viewed as pagans. Hence, when he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, he is saying that we are to have virtuous conduct among the pagans continually. Thomas R. Schreiner notes, Peter did not summon believers to a verbal campaign of self-defense or to the writing of tracts in which they defend their morality. Instead, we are to have our conduct, our virtuous conduct, lived out among the pagans continually. Are you living out your beliefs to an unsaved world through your virtuous behavior or conduct? You need to ask yourself that question. What is the world seeing? By avoiding fleshly desires and maintaining virtuous behavior, believers, you and I, when we avoid fleshly desires, maintain our virtuous behavior, we are a witness to the pagans. However, these pagans slander believers as evildoers. The term evildoer means malefactor or criminal. Interesting, this term is only used four times in the scriptures, three times in 1 Peter, and once in the Gospel of John. Uh, the term evildoer is used twice here in verse 12 and verse 14 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. It's also used in 1 Peter 3.16. Keep a good conscience so that in a thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Uh, the term in John is used to describe, uh, is used in John 18 and verse 30, uh, talking about uh, Jesus. They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So they slandered Christ, who was obviously virtuous, and Christians are being slandered by pagans as being evildoers. Like the Jewish believers to whom Peter wrote, believers today are being slandered as evildoers. In Peter's day, Christians were accused of impiety and atheism because they refused to worship Caesar as Lord. David de Silva states, by withdrawing from cultic expressions of solidarity with the citizenry and loyalty and gratitude towards those who secured the well-being of the city, Gentile Christians especially were held in suspicion and stood at risk of being viewed as subversive, unreliable, and even dangerous elements of society. Today, Christians are accused of being bigoted because they uphold traditional and biblical views of marriage. Christians are accused of waging war against women because we stand against abortion. Let me give you the following examples of 21st century persecution 
or slander against Christians in the Western world. A New Jersey teacher was suspended for providing a student with a Bible. A Washington State football coach was placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field at the end of a game. And an Atlanta, Georgia fire chief was fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian morals. And by the way, that, that, that information, if you want to research that, get the Time magazine uh, and, uh, entitled, Regular Christians Are No Longer Welcome in American Culture. You see, despite being viewed as evildoers, believers are to perform good deeds. We are to avoid fleshly desires. We are to maintain virtuous behavior. That's what Peter refers to as good deeds, avoiding fleshly desires and maintaining virtuous behavior. And such good deeds will demonstrate that the accusations against us are baseless. 1 Peter 3.16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. See, in so doing, the pagans will observe, literally inspect your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter learned this truth from Christ's own teaching in Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That they will glorify God speaks of the fact that some unbelieving Gentiles will receive God's grace and accept the gift of salvation and praise God because of the believer's good deeds. Acts 13.48 when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 15, 9. For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. See, Gentile salvation was prophesied in the Old Testament. There in Romans 15, verse 9, when it says, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's a direct quote from 2 Samuel 22, 50 and Psalm 18, 49. Both 2 Samuel 22, 50 and Psalm 18, 49, both are identical. And here's what they both identically state. Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Now, the day of visitation has a twofold purpose. One, it refers to the judgment seat of Christ, which occurs in conjunction with the church's rapture. When all believers stand before Christ, we will praise God, and particularly some will praise God, for other believers' faithfulness amid a pagan culture. Two, the day of visitation refers to condemned Gentiles who will glorify God at the great white throne. All nations, Psalm 86 verse 9, all nations, all Gentiles whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. 
The non-canonical book of Enoch, quoted by both Peter and Jude in their epistles, states in chapter 62 and verses 5 and 6, When they see that the Son of Man sitting on the throne of His glory, and the kings and the mighty and all who possess the earth shall bless and glorify and extol Him who rules over all who is hidden. Sadly, for these individuals glorifying God at the great white throne, it will be too little, too late. Friends, God has called you to holy living in a hostile world. You must not lose sight of the fact that this world is not your home. You are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Regardless of your nationality, every one of you, child of God, every one of you, has citizenship in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. Therefore, I challenge you, as citizens of heaven, do not live for this world. Live for heaven. You must pursue the pleasures of God instead of the pleasures of this world, which are fleeting. We're living amongst paganism. And you and I, as believers, need to live as aliens and strangers amid a pagan culture. Secondly, living amongst paganism, we need to live in obedience to a pagan government. We need to live in obedience to a pagan government. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondslaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You see, in this present world... We are always going to live under pagan governments. Now, for some, that very fact is reason enough to rebel. Nevertheless, Peter exhorts believers to submit to every human institution. The verb submit means to place oneself under another in an orderly fashion. The passive voice of the verb indicates that we're to place ourselves under those in authority willingly. Now he says to every human institution, and that phrase can be rendered as to every human creation. The term institution or creation, the word institution there is actually catesis or catesis, which can be translated as creation, refers to an act by which an authoritative or government body is created. See, the phrase underscores the fact of human government being created. Created by who? Well, according to Paul, God, Romans 13, 1. Every person is to be in subjection, same word that Peter uses, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That phrase, governing bodies, in Romans 13, 1, refers to, quote, listen to this, every position of civil authority without regard 
to competency, morality, reasonableness, or any other caveat. In other words, salvation, or excuse me, submission involves obedience, honor, and respect for all civil authorities without excuse. We need to submit to government, not from fear of breaking the law, but as Peter says, for the Lord's sake. Now, contextually, Peter's use of Lord, kurios, equates Jesus with Yahweh. Since Jesus is Yahweh, he is God, and is therefore the creator of human government. The phrase, for the Lord's sake, therefore, implies that Jesus is sovereign over every area of life, including human government. Thus, when you or I submit to government, we are submitting to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And when we don't submit to those governments, we are not submitting to Christ. See, obeying the law is not just a matter of outward compliance. It is also a matter of inward obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anticipating possible questions, Peter clarifies that submission to government includes the king and governors. The king refers to an emperor, a king, a dictator, or a president. In the context of 1 Peter, the king refers to Emperor Nero of Rome. During his reign, Nero murdered his mother in A.D. 59 and his wife in A.D. 62. When a fire destroyed half of Rome in A.D. 64, Nero accused Christians of starting the fire and began a wave of persecution against them, including burning Christians alive and feeding them to animals for sport. Upon discovering a vast conspiracy against him in A.D. 65, Nero ordered the murder of many Romans, including Seneca. You see, there is no doubt that Nero was a brutal despot. There is no doubt that he was unworthy of the position he held. Nonetheless, Peter recognized him as the authority and exhorted his readers, he exhorted you and I, to obey such leaders. The governors referred to two groups of leaders within the Roman Empire. Senatorial provinces, those not requiring military occupation, were overseen by proconsuls appointed by the Senate. Imperial provinces, those requiring military occupation, were overseen by legates appointed by the emperor. The authority of both the proconsuls and legates was nearly absolute. The phrase sent by him indicates that Peter refers specifically to the legates appointed by the emperor. And Peter's Jewish readers would have been quite familiar with the corruption and atrocities of such legates or governors as Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and Pilate. The atrocities of these men were well known among the Jews. Nonetheless, God commands obedience to them despite their wickedness. And believers, you and I need to submit to the civil authorities, to those in government 
whether they be kings or governors, whether they be presidents, senators, congressmen, governors, whatever, we need to submit to them because they've been established by God regardless of their wickedness. You see, due to sin, civil authorities are prone to misuse their power for their own benefit instead of the benefit of those under them. And when corrupt governments punish law-abiding citizens and reward the scoundrels who keep them in power, believer, you and I must remember that God uses wicked rulers as His scourge to punish the sins of the people. In other words, God gives a nation the ruler they deserve. Israel on many occasions was ruled over by wicked individuals as chastening for failing to obey God's moral absolutes. Are we any different? No. Peter states that civil authorities were appointed for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Peter's actually quoting from the instructions given to these governors. The problem for the Jewish believer was that they were viewed as evildoers, as previously stated in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Thus they had to expect that they would be punished even though they had done no wrong. In light of this, Peter reminds them that God's will is for believers to do what is right. Regardless of whether or not you're accused, you're slandered of being an evildoer, you still have to do what is right. It is God's will for believers to do what is right. And this is a frequent theme in Peter's epistles. 1 Peter 3.17, It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather for, than for doing what is wrong. 1 Peter 4.2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Verse 19 of 1 Peter 4, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You see, doing right is living uprightly by following the laws of the land. And by doing that, they would silence the ignorance of foolish men. Silence literally means to shut up with a muzzle. Ignorance is a failure to comprehend the faith. And that such individuals are foolish means that they act without reason or mental sanity. Thus, by obeying the law of the land, slanderous attacks will be minimized. Charges of evil will be found to have no basis. And those who accuse us or slander us as evildoers will be muzzled. Again, submission to government is not a matter of outward compliance, but inward obedience to the Lord. And that's why Peter provides three statements to guide our motives in submitting to the government. See, in verse 16... He's going to give us three motives uh, to guide us in our submission. 
I want you to notice here in verse 16 that the terms act, live, do, or use are not in the Greek text. They're supplied by the translator. There's no verbs in verse 16. So in each of these statements, the verb submit from verse 13 is implied. First, we are to submit to the government as free men. Free men refers to someone no longer under servitude towards another. However, in the context, Jewish believers were not free in a political sense. Many Jews did not even have Roman citizenship, and they all lived under Roman oppression. In what manner, then, were they to live as free men? Romans 8.2 For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. They were free from the law of sin. Second, we are to submit to the government without using our freedom as a covering for evil. You see, freedom from sin liberates us from doing evil so that we can do what is good. And doing good involves serving others in sacrificial love, which is the sum of God's law. Romans 13, 8-10 Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The moment you or I use our freedom to advance our own causes is the moment we are no longer obeying the law of love. Instead, we are then using our freedom as a cloak of evil. The more we sacrificially serve one another, the more we're going to experience true freedom. Sadly, today, most believers are more concerned with their rights than the good of their neighbors. Third, believers, you and I, we need to submit to the government as free men, not using our freedom as a covering for evil, and number three, as bond slaves or bond servants of God. A bond slave, a doulos, is an individual who serves the will of another. You know, previously, believer, you and I were bond slaves of sin, but now we are willing bond slaves of God. Romans 6, 16 to 18. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, to that form of teaching by which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves, bond slaves of righteousness. Because you and I are bond slaves, bond servants of God, we are called to live under Christ's lordship. And that includes obeying the government as servants of God. Peter concludes this section with four commands in verse 17. Now, two of these commands are reminiscent of Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king. The first command is to honor all people. The term honor means to esteem or respect. We are to treat all people, not some people, but all people with respect without ex exception. The second command is to love the brotherhood. This love is sacrificial love for one's Christian brothers and sisters. 
you and I must maintain this love, especially when we're scattered, when we're suffering, and when we're slandered. Third command is to fear God. The term fear is a reverence that moves a child to obey their parents. As children of God, you and I are to reverence our Heavenly Father by seeking to please Him in our daily conduct. You see, fear of God causes you and causes me to cleanse ourselves from sin and grow in holiness. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And fear only belongs to God because, as Gopal states, God alone determines existence and non-existence. Or as Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the lake of fire. The fourth command is to honor the king. Again, the term honor means to esteem or respect. The term king refers to an emperor, king, dictator, or president. Thus, even though we are free citizens of God, we must still show respect to those in human leadership. While we may not approve of the man or woman in office, we are to respect the office and honor the individual for the Lord's sake. Now, let's be clear that giving respect to government officials does not mean that we should condone their evil behavior. John the Baptist confronted Herod's sin of incest in Matthew 14, 3 and 4. When Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Jesus also rebuked civil authorities regarding issues of morality in Luke 22, 25. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. You see, while we need to speak out against the immoral behavior of government officials, we still need to heed three cautions. One, condemning immorality and leadership doesn't mean we hate the individual. Two, condemning immorality and leadership should not be mean-spirited. And three, condemning immorality and leadership should not employ worldly tactics. Believer, guard yourself against becoming antagonistic towards the lost people that you've been called to reach with the gospel. While Christians must speak out against sin, injustice, immorality, and ungodliness, we must do it in a law-abiding manner. You know, with any discussion on the topic of Christians and government, the question of civil disobedience arises inevitably. And while much could be said on this topic, this treatment will be limited strictly to the church and governmental authority. If the government commands the church to do something that directly violates God's words, then we must resist the government and obey God. That course of action will result in some form of human punishment. But it's better to suffer human punishment than moral censure from God. And Scripture provides examples of divinely sanctioned civil disobedience. When the Egyptian midwives were commanded by Pharaoh to abort Hebrew babies in Exodus 1, 15-17, they refused. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow and worship an idol in Daniel 3, 4-12. And Daniel continued to pray to God when a law forbidding prayers to anyone but the king was issued in Daniel chapter 6, verses 7-10. And despite being commanded not to preach the gospel, Peter and John continued preaching the gospel, Acts 4, 18-20 and chapter 5, verse 29. 
In each of those situations, there was no moral censure from God. As well, each act of civil disobedience centered on a moral issue clearly addressed in God's Word. Now, in light of the ongoing pandemic, different restrictions have been placed upon churches varying state by state. Some pastors and churches view these restrictions as violations of their rights and have refused to comply, choosing instead to commit civil disobedience. Are these restrictions worthy of committing civil disobedience? In short, no, they are not. First, in cases where churches are restricted from meeting indoors, they are allowed to meet outdoors or make other provisions. If these restrictions outlawed any and all forms of worship or preaching, then a case could be made for civil disobedience. However, workarounds and solutions have been offered by the state to these churches. Furthermore, there is nothing in the scripture that dictates where or how a church meets. It doesn't say you have to meet in a building. It doesn't say you have to have X amount of people in the building. Difficult times call for out-of-the-box thinking. For example, in China, the government has mandated that non-state sanctioned churches limit the number of, of attendees to less than 200. Churches comply. And when they begin near that number, they plan a new church. Second, there are historical examples of churches obeying government restrictions on gatherings. In the 1917 Spanish flu pandemic, churches followed government restrictions on gatherings and canceled services. Throughout World War II, churches obeyed government blackout orders and again canceled services. It should be noted that then, like now, churches were not being singled out. The restrictions were applied across the board to other venues and businesses. Third, churches follow state-established fire, building, and zoning codes. The enforcement of such codes is the job of the state to protect and preserve life. No one rationally claims that the state's exercise and authority over church polity or inhibiting a church's ability to worship with such codes. Thus, to claim that the government restrictions on public gatherings during a pandemic is a quote-unquote illegitimate intrusion of state authority into ecclesiastical matters is a stretch at best and hypocrisy at worst. Finally, committing civil disobedience over government restrictions in a pandemic is not the most profitable decision. 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. You see, the same restrictions being applied to churches are also applied to restaurants, theaters, museums, gyms, funeral homes, and the like. How is Christ glorified? and the gospel manifested to the owners and employees of these businesses who are financially suffering, but seeing their local churches thumb their nose at the restrictions because they believe their perceived rights are violated. Churches and believers must remember that the law of love for one's neighbor is still in force. Love your neighbor and set an example. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we thank and praise you for the text, though a hard text for us, Lord, to accept and to, to receive, to swallow, because 
By nature, we're rebels. By nature, we don't want to be told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. But Father, nonetheless, you've called us to live amongst paganism. And as such, Father, you've called us to live as aliens and strangers amid a pagan culture. Father, I pray to that end that you'd help us to live holy, help us to live differently, distinctly from the pagan culture in which we live, so that when people see us, they see you. And Father, help us as well to, to live under pagan governments. Father, the governments are corrupt. We don't deny that. They're filled with wicked men and women. We don't deny that. And Father, while it is necessary to call out evil, we're also responsible to submit. And so, Father, I pray to that end you would help us. And more particularly, Father, help us to guard our testimony as a church to an unsaved community around us. That, Father, they would not see us as a church or as believers behaving in a way that they would perceive as dangerous or perceiving in a way that they would perceive as endangering them. But that rather, Father, they would see us setting the example of what it means to love one another. We pray in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.